Take your Bibles, turn to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1. We're talking about the book of Isaiah as we walk through this um, reading the Bible in a year. We are to the prophets, officially to the prophets, and Isaiah is the longest prophet book. Uh, It's one of the longest books in the Bible. Uh, Psalms has 150 uh, Psalms, but it's not as long necessarily as uh, Isaiah because well, it may be long, as long, but it's the, the chapters aren't as long. Isaiah has how many chapters? Sixty-six, right? So it's it's a rather long book. It's a long prophecy. We'll talk about in sections really three about three distinct sections, and then be moving on. But uh, we're today. We're talking about chapter 1 through about the 21st chapter or so. And uh, let me give you a little background. The prophet's name here is Isaiah, right? Anybody know what the name Isaiah means? It means salvation of the Lord, all right? So Isaiah means salvation of the Lord. That's a key theme of the book. Um, One uh, commentator has said it, it gives five different acts of deliverance in the book, uh, major acts of deliverance. First, there was the deliverance of Judah from Assyrian invasion. Uh, there's the, that's in chapters 36 and 37. There's deliverance of the nation from Babylonian captivity in chapter 40. Uh, there's the future deliverance of Jews from worldwide dispersion among the Gentiles. That's in chapters 11 and 12. There's deliverance of lost sinners from judgment in chapter 53. And the final deliverance of creation from bondage in chapters 60 and 66. So, Five major parts of salvation of God uh, there. Where did Isaiah prophesy? Judah, right? Remember, that was where you got to use some of that history that we learned. Israel and Judah split. And so at the end of Uzziah's reign, um, all the way probably into the beginning part of Manasseh's reign. Now, Manasseh is not mentioned in the book, but he was the next king after Hezekiah. uh, And Isaiah seems to have spanned that whole thing. Tradition holds that when Manasseh became king, he did away with Isaiah, that he had him killed. So that is tradition. You won't find that in the book, obviously, because then, you know, you know Isaiah didn't write the book about himself where he talks about him dying. So, uh, But that's not in the book. But uh, tradition holds that uh, he was uh, sawn in half. Okay, that's tradition about Isaiah. So it's not just New Testament that has martyrs, prophets in the Old Testament were as well. That's why when you get to Jesus, he tells that parable about you beat up the workers, you beat up the workers, and then you send the son, and you rejected the son and killed him too. So you had Isaiah uh, doing that. Um, Isaiah was a man who uh, loved his nation. Um, he called, he used the phrase "my people" at least twenty-six times in the book, and so he never becomes distraught with his people. Um, His favorite name for God is the Holy One of Israel. He uses that 25 times. Uh, He was courageous. He was unafraid to denounce kings. He was skilled in communicating God's truth. Uh, uh, But he didn't have tons of converts. He had a real difficult ministry. So, who Who were the kings that he worked with? We mentioned Manasseh was who killed him, but I know y'all didn't come expecting a quiz, but that's why I just you know, that's why it's a pop quiz, right? Uzziah, 
Uh, he was called to ministry in the year King Uzziah died, so he would have been alive during Uzziah, but wouldn't have been prophesying necessarily to him. Then Uzziah's son, Jotham, who, if you remember the story of Uzziah, uh, Jotham uh, ruled with Uzziah for a little while, co-regents, because Uzziah got leprosy. Remember when we read through the Chronicles and they referred to Uzziah when he died as, oh, he had leprosy. Uh, and so they ruled together for a little while. And then Jotham and Ahaz ruled together for a little while. And then it's Ahaz that's there. Ahaz isn't the best king. Um, and then you have Hezekiah, who's a pretty good king. And so that's the people that he was with. Remember that he is in Judah, which is the more faithful of the two. So it's not, it's Israel and Judah. And Judah is the more faithful of the two. That doesn't mean they're completely faithful, but between the two, they're the more faithful. All right? That's just a little introduction. Questions? What questions do you have out of what we read? Yeah. There's a, most people, the only time we read that prophecy is at Christmas, right? Uh, the, the virgin will be with child and she will give birth. But the immediate, and, and there is definitely an understanding that this is a foretelling of the birth of Christ from the virgin birth. But in the immediate time, it was a it was a assurance of protection for Ahaz, saying to him, "Listen, that you are afraid of Assyria, right? There are all these making sure that that's right. You're afraid of them, and you're trying to make an alliance with them. Don't worry about them. Don't worry about um, uh, Aram, and don't worry about all these different powers, because this woman you see here, she's a virgin." And by the time she gets married and conceives and that child gets to be a certain age, they're going to be gone. And Israel will still, or Judah will still be here. And so the initial fulfillment in chapter 8, most people think it is, um, that's Isaiah's, Isaiah's second wife's child is the fulfillment of that prophecy. He has an interesting name for his children, right? Yes. Hosh. Mahir Shalahash Baz. That's in chapter 8, verse 3. Which means, I mean, how would you like to have this as your name? Quick to plunder, swift to spoil. Taking the role, is John here? Bobby here? What about quick to plunder, swift to spoil? Are you here? Now, most people also think, well, you say, well, I thought his name was supposed to be Emmanuel. They think that it was it was both, that that. Sometimes, they, you know, they were given a name at birth, and as they grew up, they were given, but that, that it was both. And it was a promise that God was with them. Yeah, there is a real, um, there's this idea in Scripture that we only need to stand firm and allow the Lord to fight for us, is the idea. I, I, that's what I think the overall idea of that stand firm concept is. Now, I haven't read that anywhere but what I see is in those places they say stand firm, it's always you stand firm and God will take care. You get the picture of David and Goliath. But David just, I mean, he had the slingshot, but the whole point was he stood firm. You look at Isaiah saying to Ahaz, you just stand firm. They'll, take, they'll be taken care of. You think of uh, in Ephesians where it's stand firm. And, and the whole idea is if you stand firm, God will fight for you. Just don't give ground. And so I, I think that's an act of faith is saying, Regardless of what's happening right now, I'm standing firm where I am. And I think that's a definite theme of Scripture. 
So you weren't listening when I was talking. Is that what you just said, Cliff? Okay, you're half listening. Does that work with your wife? Do you? Okay, good. Doesn't work with mine either when I half listen. Yes. Um, now, it's different fulfillments of the same thing. Um, and so, in chapter 9, you have that to us a child is born. What was happening, well, it's not the same child necessarily, except that it is fulfilled ultimately both in Jesus. Um, the idea there is that ultimately we won't have to worry about this anymore. But that's an ultimate thing. And we're still in the ultimately phase. Even though Jesus has come, has rescued us, has saved us, we are now in that already not yet tension where we're still waiting for the ultimate. And so chapter 9 is one of those places where you see, you're going to see once you get into Isaiah completely, that it is still not a very hopeful book if you just read it. I mean, there's lots of condemnation. There's lots of judgment. There's lots of God pouring out his wrath. There's lots of that. But interspersed in that is Isaiah's little nuggets of hope. And chapter 9 is definitely one of those nuggets of hope that um, that that all this is going to happen, but that a great light will come. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus breaking down the strongholds. A great light will come. The nation will joy. They will rejoice. The men will rejoice. The yoke of the burdens will be taken away. Every warrior's boot and robe will be destined for burning. There won't be any need for wars or rumors of wars. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You have that, all of that. But one of the most important parts of that 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 is not focused on very much in that Christmas time when we talk about it, which, by the way, you know, a hundred days to Christmas today. Some of you need to get out there shopping, I know, all right? A hundred days today. But one of the things that's often missed in that whole discussion is that last part of verse 7, which says, The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And the idea there is that God is passionate about bringing about His ending in His way in His timing. And it will be done. It will be accomplished. There's no doubt but that there is a zeal behind it. There's a, there's a wanting, there's a longing for it from God's perspective and from ours. Uh, oftentimes I think one of the things we miss in Scripture is we get in, sense the, in Scripture this sense of groaning, this sense of wanting from us, this desire from human beings, this desire from believers in Jesus, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I'm ready for this to be over, Lord Jesus, whenever, Lord Jesus. But what we miss out on is the desire and the... And the um, the passion of God to see it completed, but he is being patient so that others might be saved and brought into the family, which lays it on our shoulders to take that passion to others. And so that is communicated in this verse as well. I know that's what you were asking about, Cliff, but that's that's what was communicated here. What else? Isaiah, first 20 or so chapters of Isaiah. Um, it was a nation. I mean, what it says here is Cush. Um, and I don't. Ha- I had that note written down about those nations, and I, don't, I left it. Cush was just the Cushites. Uh, that's that's real intelligent there. And the, the people of Cush are the Cushites. Um, they were just that was their race of people that would kind of de- determine them. That section is Isaiah speaking the words of God to the nations that surrounded Israel, saying basically, "Your time is coming, and it's not going to be too 
far off when you will be judged. And then he will spend much of the book talking to Israel or to Judah, but he's saying those nations that surrounded them, that were the world powers at the time. To give you some perspective, it would almost be like um, Luxembourg. You know Luxembourg over in Europe, there's a country, Luxembourg, just a tiny little country. And then a prophet from Luxembourg looking around and saying, Spain, yours is coming to you. And Germany, you're going to get it. And France, your time is short. I mean, it was almost like he was just going around the circle saying, you're, all this is going to happen to you. But nobody expected to hear Luxembourg when he came in tonight, right? In Isaiah discussion. Wasn't in your Bible, right? What else in Isaiah? Yeah, this is what happened. King Ahaz had struck a pretty good blow against the Philistines. And so if you see that in verse 28, it says that this oracle came in the year King Ahaz died. And you got this feeling that, oh, hey, the king that, that got us is gone. That means that Israel's going to be weakened. So it's our turn now. We, we, we've gotten rid of this king. It's happened to him, so we're going to go back. And he says, don't get all happy about that. It's not the king. It was the God that he served. And your, your time is still coming. It, it was a future they, they were not in as, you know, at one time the Philistines were a major world power in that area of the world. They were not at that time as much of a world power, and they would never really be as much of a world power. Not, not necessarily. Um, they were, Philistines were more seafaring people, um, a little farther north um, in that area. So not, Palestinians really are uh, people that, were of the Arabic tribes that settled the Holy Land um, when the Jews were dispersed. Right. Most most of what he, most of when you in this part is this is what I would say about that in the Book of Isaiah when it's when he's talking to other nations Isaiah particularly he's talking about nations that will happen long before we're here now. So when he's talking to the Philistines and he's talking to the Moabites and he's talking to Damascus. And all of that. Even though we could look and say, well, that means this today, most of that is confined to the people in that day. He was speaking forth the truth that they would never rise to world power again. Now, when he begins to talk about the Messiah, when you get to Isaiah, when you get to that description about a child is born unto us, that's pretty obvious. You see, I mean, the descriptive languages there is there. You won't need war. You, I mean, it'll be the government will be on his shoulder. He shall reign forever. And you know, it's hard to read that without starting the handles course, you know, but, uh, you know, he shall reign forever and ever and ever. That's obviously future eternal kind of significance. When you get into Isaiah 53 and he starts talking about the suffering servant, well, it's pretty obvious that that's an allusion to Jesus Christ and what's happening there. When we get to the end of the book and he starts talking about the recreation of the world, it's pretty obvious that's an end time thing. But when he's talking to specific sins or specific occurrences, most of the time they were to have already happened or most of the time are were going to happen within the next 50 to 100 to 200 years. What's that? Well, the, the, the nation, you know, I mean, the people not necessarily. They, The nation, I mean, there's no Philistine. And Phil, the Philistine nation was really kind of a loose, um, it resembled very much the early colonies in America. There were five major cities of the Philistine nation that were loosely bound together. Kind of like the original colonies were here 
uh, for those of you that know American history or studied that, that they were colonies, they were their own entities, and they had loose affiliation for defending and whatever needed to happen. Uh, and in some ways, we're, it's, the Constitution kind of sets up for us to act that way now, but we've become much more of a consolidated nation. But Philistine, it was Gath, and, you know, there were these, the Philistine people, yeah, in some way, yeah, I mean, they weren't wiped off the face of the earth, but you couldn't, there's no nationality that you can go up to and go, oh, they go all the way back to the Philistines. Well, I mean, they were, they were definitely seafaring warrior kind of people for a while, but, I mean, they, they weren't necessarily a race of giants, I mean, you had Goliath, and Goliath was strange for even them. I mean, he was not, they didn't have 20 Goliaths. They had one. That's why they sent him out to challenge. Well, that was the promised land. Yeah, there were, there were yeah. When, they, when the scouts went out and they came back and they said, but, and the people probably were, I mean, Jews have traditionally, it's not one of those stereotypical things, but traditionally in the history of the world, Jewish people have been shorter uh, than other people, and, and I'm not, I mean, that's one of those statements that get you in trouble, but I mean, just traditionally, I mean, most people think Jesus was around five foot, I mean, because the Jews of his day were around five foot, four and a half feet to five feet tall, I mean, they would consider me tall, I consider my brother-in-law that's six, seven, a giant, now, Goliath was taller than that, but I'm just saying that, you know, when they, they came across, if they would have walked into modern day America, they would have been like, and it is a land of giants, right? I mean, they would have seen that. That's way back. We're not we're jumping, we're jumping four, six months back here. I'll look up Nimrod again this week. I just don't want to say something that's not fully correct there. All right, back to Isaiah. All right, any questions in Isaiah? Okay, go, Danny. Well, the weeping prophet is Jeremiah, and traditionally, uh, uh, Isaiah is considered a guy that, that was heartbroken for his people, but was also very defiant. Um, now, Isaiah in itself is one of the most quoted books in the New Testament, partially because of his strong stance of holiness and on his predictions of the coming Messiah. And so people used it a lot. Uh, most most preachers that, that preach almost exclusively New Testament, if they decide to preach out of the Old Testament, a lot of times they'll go to the Isaiah because it seems more New Testament than other books. So I don't know if that kind of I don't know if that answers the question, but it that's kind of always been kind of a, a thought process there. Well, he does talk about the Gentiles. We'll get to that a little bit later. I mean, he talks about the Gentiles and being a light and all of that. But he's not the only one. I mean, that's the Old Testament. Jonah's pretty evident that that's when we get to Jonah that that's part of their reason for existing and. All right, other things in Isaiah. My favorite chapter in the Old Testament is in Isaiah, chapter 6. It is not unfamiliar to most people. It's one of the most well-known chapters in all of Scripture. Um, There was a time in my life when uh, I was a senior in high school, and I was on a trip as a counselor for freshman young life. We took a trip to Florida. Young Life freshmen did every year, and they took seniors as counselors. And I was there, and I was reading a devotional book, my utmost for his highest, and it was on that just I was reading that day. It was a spring break trip. And there was just a phrase in there that, that just, I had been called to ministry. I had been 
I knew I was supposed to be in ministry. I I had kind of said, I don't know what I'm going to do. In my mind, I knew I would pastor. That's what God was calling me to do. But I never really announced that. People kind of guessed that, but, I, you know, I didn't announce that. And I remember uh, reading that one day, and uh, it was a devotional in Isaiah chapter 6, and specifically on that verse where it says, Whom shall I send and who will go for me? And, and for some reason, I was 18 years old. I'd, been, I'd grown up in church. I'd studied Bibles. I'd been in Bible studies. I'd read that passage many times. Was the first time I ever realized he didn't say, Isaiah, I need you to go for me. And I do believe in the personal call of Christ on my life to be a full time Christian minister. But what I also realize is there's a general call for all believers to be a part of the kingdom work of God. And that we are all called to do our part in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I didn't have a clue what this meant when I. Um, I didn't have a clue what this meant when I was a senior in high school, and I don't fully understand it always now, but every time I read this passage, one of the things God's kind of said to me that day or kind of laid out for me that day was um, that in churches it's so easy, and it, this was directed as me as a pastor, for you to do the work and not challenge the people. God just kind of put that phrase in my mind. And he says, I have called all people to do my ministry. I have called you specifically full-time. I want you to dedicate your life to this. But that doesn't mean you dedicate your life to it and cause other people not to. And I read a quote the other day. Um, or Actually, I saw there was a, a conference online the other day called The Nines. It was free. People, Christian leaders from all kinds of churches, from all kinds of places, were asked in six minutes to tell the thing that changed their life more than anything. And Ed Stetzer, who works for Lifeway Research, said this. He said, I realized when I did the work that my people were supposed to do, I was hurting them and thwarting the gospel. And so every time I read this, the Lord just impresses on me again to challenge you and myself to answer the question, what has God called you to do in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ? And that means more than just ministering to the people that are already within our congregation. It means more than just talking to people that are already believers in Jesus Christ. What has he called you to do to spread the gospel beyond believers in Jesus Christ in the community in which we live? So that is, every time I read it, I feel God saying, challenge with that. Because what you get is this unbelievable Moment. Now, what I realize is from Isaiah chapter 6 is this. You are never ready to accomplish what God needs you to accomplish until you come to Him in complete humility, understanding He is the one that will accomplish it through you and that you are cleansed from whatever's happening in your life and you have a new vision for Him and for His mission. And what happens in Isaiah 6 is He goes to the temple, I believe, distraught because King Uzziah has died. What do we do now? And the Lord lifts back the veil of heaven for a minute. He gets a new glimpse of who God is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The train of His robe, the place is shaking, the angels are singing, and He gets a new understanding of who He is. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He gets cleansed by the encounter with the Lord, and then after that encounter, He is prepared and ready to go and serve. And that is the model. And so... The question is, are you ready to serve? Have you had your encounter? And then what has God called you to be a part of?
Well, I, I think chapter 6, I believe chapter 6 almost serves as a flashback. That Isaiah begins to write and tell this story, and this is what God said to me. And what you have is, it's almost like chapter 1, it, chapter one is written like a courtroom scene. That the nation of Israel is brought before God. Isaiah is kind of their advocate. And God says, these are the charges I have against Israel or Judah, my people. These are my charges, and they are as follows. I've given you everything you ever needed to be profitable and to follow me, and you have turned your back. And because of that, these are the consequences. And then Isaiah does a song, and he's like, oh, yeah, let me tell you how I got here in the first place. I got here in the first place because one day I went to the temple and I saw this. And God told me I was going to have this mission. So I I think that, I'm not saying he didn't get visions before then, but Isaiah 6, in my mind, is kind of the impetus for the official structure that he then began to hear and receive messages for the Lord. So I don't know that it's in chronological order. Right. Yeah, I I don't think that Isaiah is written necessarily in chronological order. And so I think it's, and I don't think he forgot and go, oh, oh, I forgot. I got to put that back in, you know. Like when I write a paper sometimes and I go, oh, I need to put that back in at the beginning. I think he's just, in his telling of the story, it's setting the scene. This is what got, let me tell you how I got here, and then this is what happened. So, chapters one through six are very much an introduction. Actually, one through five serve as kind of a literary poetic introduction. And then chapter six and following is kind of, okay, here's what happened the branch from Jesse. All right, let's go to 2 Corinthians. We're going to finish that up tonight. We are not going to get into Galatians tonight, even though we've read a couple of chapters in that. We'll do Galatians next week. Um, We'll do all of Galatians next week. We'll be in the middle of Isaiah again next week. So let's go to 2 Corinthians. Let me tell you a little piece of uh, discussion among scholars, and that is that what you read this week, in part, is Paul's bitter letter to the Corinthians. You remember at the first part of 2 Corinthians, he talks about the bitter letter he sent that caused them to repent and to turn away from those things. And then it's almost like you get to 10, 11, 12, 13, and the farther you go, the harsher he gets. Um, there are many scholars, now this isn't consensus by any means, but there are a lot of scholars that think that perhaps as they were collecting, the Corinthians were correct, collecting these letters to disperse them among the people. They included that bitter letter as an explanation behind the letter that he had written. And so they, we have those two letters together. There are some scholars say that's a bunch of hooey for the technical word there. So, But it is interesting the change in demeanor of Paul because there's that one point where he says, you know, I mean, he gets pretty you know aggravated with them in the second part. You The only thing I didn't do for you is I didn't take advantage of it. Maybe I should have taken advantage of you. And you haven't, you know, you haven't turned from your ways. If you haven't turned from your ways, I'm coming in. It won't be good. When the first part of it talked about how they had turned from their ways. Okay, so that's a theory out there. Yes, at least. There are some that think that 2 Corinthians is the third and fourth letter. Because there seems to have been a letter before 1 Corinthians. This is the thing I always love to do. And so 1 Corinthians, we don't have. 
1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is definitely not 3 Corinthians in its totality. It's probably 4 Corinthians. But if the bitter letter is on the back end of it, then it is 3 Corinthians that would be in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. No. Right. But it's definitely not only it's not the second letter. There, there weren't only two. There would have been multiple letters. Paul seemed to have a real concern for this. Um, in fact, I... Uh, when Paul boasts about his sufferings, I couldn't help but think that that's just a pastor's heart. I mean, you know, he talks about all this stuff that's going on, and then he says, and on top of all of that, I'm worried about you. And don't you think that when somebody falls, I hurt. And when somebody slips away, it bothers me. And that's just that's just the heart of a pastor, you know, who cares for his people. Because um, what you get in that... What you get in that whole description there is that um, it's just building, you know. I mean, he's just building, and it's getting worse and worse, the things that happen. I mean, he was shipwrecked. Well, that's not the worst part of it. I was out in the open sea for a day, and I, well, that's not really the worst part of it. Every time I walk down the road, I'm afraid somebody's going to kill me. Well, that's not the worst. I'm in danger from my countrymen. I'm in danger from strangers. I'm in the country, in the city. I'm in danger everywhere. And on top of all that, on top of going without food or sleep, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all these churches, including you. And when one of them is weak, I'm weak. And when one of them is put into sin, I burn on the inside. You know, just a great passage. It's always the passage I say. Can you imagine if you got that resume for a pastor search committee, right? In jail. I've been in jail more than any of you. Beaten. Worked harder. This is one of my favorite lines. Of Paul, I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more often. I've been flogged more severely, and I've been exposed to death. What you got? That's what he basically says, right? These super apostles. Did you get his kind of sarcasm there? He says that a couple of times. The super apostles. Well, they ain't got that. So, yes, ma'am. I don't know of anybody that doesn't think he's the man. Not. Anything except what's in Hebrew. I mean, it's in Second Corinthians twelve. I mean, there's this, there's this kind of scene. I mean, there's in the in Genesis one one when it says God created the heavens and the earth. That doesn't mean He created heaven and the earth. That means He created the heavens, and the heavens are the sky. And there, there are some in Jewish theology that do kind of a first heaven, which is our atmosphere, a second heaven, which is um, the stars, and then the third heavens, wherever God dwells. So there are some that say that's that's what's happening here. What he's saying is, I wasn't taken literally into space. I was spiritually taken to the place where God dwells. There are some that say, I, I had a professor at, U, at, a, at seminary, um, a guy named E. Earl Ellis, Triple E, E. Earl Ellis. Uh, um, e. Earl uh Believes that he was taken into a council much like what happened in the book of Job. And I thought about that. I was reading because we just read Job where God and Satan are sitting there talking and his opinion of the, of the thorn is with Martin Luther almost that then Satan asked to be able to have a, a demon um, assigned to harass Paul. A messenger of Satan assigned to harass Paul, kind of saying to God, 
kind of like you did with Job. Well, yeah, Paul's doing a good job, but let me harass him. Let me have at him a little bit. And so that there was some being assigned to Paul. That, that was E. Earl Ellis's belief. That when he went up into this third heaven, he was shown some things. And while he was there, it was revealed to him that he was going to be harassed for the rest of his life. That's as good of a guess as anybody else can make. All right. But I think the, the implication is, I don't think that there's in heaven, there's necessarily three heavens. Now, this is where um, Mormonism gets some of their um, celestial, terrestrial, celestial, terrestrial, telestial. There are three, they have three levels of the hereafter, and that you can ascend into those three levels depending on your works here. Um, but I don't think that's what's meant in this passage. Obviously, I wouldn't think that would be what was meant here. Anything else in Second Corinthians? Second Corinthians? What's that? All right, let me get there. Okay, chapter eleven and twelve. What's that? It's chapter. Well, there's not a fourteen and fifteen in Second Corinthians. So it'll be chapter eleven, one through fifteen. I got you. I thought you were saying Second Corinthians fourteen chapter. Second Corinthians chapter eleven, verses fourteen and fifteen. Um, what Paul is talking about here is uh, that the Corinthians have not been very discerning. That these people are coming in teaching a different gospel, and they're undoing the work that he has done. And so he keeps saying that I, I, you know, I mean, and one of the accusations they made against Paul is that Paul was just there for financial gain. That Paul was using the gospel and ministry to make money. Aren't you glad we don't have anybody making those kind of accusations about anybody today, right? I mean, it's been it's been around for years. It'll be around. People saying, well, he's just in it for the money, or that guy's just... Now, there are people that are doing it to make money. I mean, that's... But what he's saying is, I, I didn't do that. I was with you. I'll continue what I've always done in verse 12. Undercut those who are looking opportunity to boast in their work is just like ours. They're false apostles. They're deceitful workers. Verse 14, I'm not surprised. Even Satan disguised himself angel light, so it's no wonder that his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, and then they'll get punishment. What he's just saying is, um, how do they do that? They say the right things. They talk the way pe- preachers talk. They dress like preachers are supposed to dress, whatever that means. But they're doing it out of selfish ambition or selfish gain. may not even have a relationship with the Lord. Um, I think what he's saying here is that there will be people who will tickle your ears, who will tell you what you want to hear, that will say the right things, that will encourage you. But in the end, they're not true believers of Jesus Christ. They're not truly telling the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, he, he would, in other places, there's that, that point that, well, but that's not necessarily all bad if the gospel is getting preached. He says, because he says at one point, well, even if it's preached by false motives, at least Christ is being preached. At the same time, he's also saying, but for them it's not good. And so what he's saying is these guys that have come in, I know they act like they know things, and they sound great. They tell a good message, but they're not living or doing what they're supposed to be doing. That's what I think he means. And there have always been. What was the, um, oh, what was the story? It's the classic American novel about the um, about the preacher that, that fools everybody. Elmer Gantry. I mean, that's 
that's kind of what I think is here. A modern-day example, and, and I don't know this guy's character at all other than what I see on TV and follow him as, his, as he coaches my school's basketball team, but a guy like Bruce Pearl, who I don't know if you know Bruce Pearl, but coaches the Tennessee basketball team. He was on the ethics committee for the NCAA. He has been known as one that always said he was staying above the board, and then he had a little problem in his in his thing, and he lied about it. So saying that you put on this front, and that doesn't mean that we all don't fail, but that there, what he's saying is there are guys that aren't in it for your best interest and for the gospel's best interest. You have to be aware of that. All right, anything else in Second Corinthians? All right, Psalm or Proverb you want to mention? Okay, go. I think that was an ancient practice that sometimes happened. I don't think they drew a bath of blood of the wicked, but, you know, just they danced in it a little bit. What I think is interesting about that one, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty tough little psalm there, right? But what I think is interesting is, did you see the tune it was to be destro- sung to? Do not destroy. That sound like a good tune right there? I'm going to guess that was not a peaceful, melodic tune. Anything else? Psalms or Proverbs? You know, the truth is, that's just another one of those verses that, that they need to turn into the things you put up on the kids' walls. You know, I mean, what was that? The, I like the second part of that. Physical discipline may well save them from death or destruction. Just being disciplining is important. We won't get into full discussion of appropriate ways and means, but some sort of discipline is uh, important. All right. I like on the 12th of September, don't eat with people who are stingy. Don't desire their delicacies. They are always thinking about how much it costs. You ever ate with somebody and you can just see in their head, counting up how much money that is? I have to read this verse every now and then. I go out to eat with my boys, right? Daddy, I just want like two orders of cheese sticks and a couple of cheeseburgers. I don't know if that's 14, 15. Eat and drink, they say, but they don't mean it. All right, that's it for the week. Next week, we're going to talk about the whole book of Galatians. We'll continue in Isaiah. Keep going. You're doing great. We are closing in on three-fourths through the Bible for those that you have been around and If you've just joined us recently, then jump right in where we are. If you need to know where we are, let me know. All right?